5. Answer most purposes unless you can afford to have a stock made especially. The principal thing is to do all your practicing with your own gun until it becomes second nature to bring it up quickly and have the eye find the barrel instantly. A shotgun is not aimed in the same way as a rifle. The method of good shots is rather to keep their eye on the game and when they feel that the gun is plumped right to fire. A skillful shot can tell whether he is shooting too high or too low just as he pulls the trigger. The brain, head, and eyes and trigger finger must all work in harmony or you will never be a good shot. Never flinch as you shoot. This is a very common fault of beginners and it is fatal to becoming a marksman. The first lesson in handling a gun is to understand perfectly how it works. If it is a hammerless gun, remember that it is always cocked. When you open the barrels you cock the gun automatically. For this reason there is some kind of a safety device provided, which should always be left at safe except at the actual instant of firing. It is just as easy to learn to push the safety off when you fire as it is to learn to pull the trigger. If one starts right, never carry your gun with your finger on the trigger. Wait until you put the gun up as you are ready to shoot. Don't forget the safety. A great many shots are missed because the hunter forgets whether he has left it on or off and in his anxiety to hit the game will tug and pull on the trigger until, just as the game disappears out of range, he will remember that he did not release it. This shows the importance of acquiring the proper habitat first. It is harder to correct bad habits in handling a gun than to teach the beginner the proper way at first. On your first lesson in the field, walk on the left side of your teacher so that your gun will be wanting away from him. If you come across any game, try to take your time before you fire. Nearly everyone shoots too quickly. As most shotgun shooting is what is called snap shooting, there isn't much time at best but a good shot will be sure that he has covered his game before he fires, while a beginner will trust to a luck. This will be the hardest fault to correct. Consequently a beginner should if possible hunt alone for a while, as the presence of another gun alongside of him makes him too anxious to get in the first shot, and gets him into bad habits. If your teacher also has a gun, he must assure you that he does not intend to shoot and then you will try harder to get the game and run less chance of missing. Always unload a gun before going into a house, under or over a fence, or in or out of a boat or carriage. If you leave your gun, even for a minute, and load it, never rest a loaded gun against a tree or a building. Never pull a gun loaded or empty toward you by the muzzle. In unloading always point it toward the ground. A jar will sometimes discharge a gun and very often a discharge will take place when closing the breech on a tight shell. Always be ready for game, in hunting. We never can tell at what instant it will rise up in front of us. Be ready does not mean having the muscles and nerves constantly on attention. It is simply to carry your gun in such a position that you can quickly bring it to the shoulder at any time. It is a good plan to practice aiming at various objects as you go along until you gradually overcome your awkwardness. It is difficult to say what makes a good shot with a gun. There is no question but that practice will make anyone a better shot than he would be without it. But some people are better shots with very little practice than others with a great deal. One very important thing is to do your practicing under conditions similar to the actual hunting. If the cover is thick where you hunt, a swamp or brush lot for example, you will not derive much benefits from practicing entirely in the open. A pigeon trap is an inexpensive way to learn to shoot. Some experienced hunters will say that practice at clay pigeons does not help in the field. But at the same time a good brush shot is almost always a good trap shot and if you can become skillful enough to break an average of 18 to 20 clay pigeons out of 25 at 16 yards rise, 
you may be sure that you will get your share of game under actual hunting conditions. The most difficult part of bird hunting is to learn to give the game a start. The average shot gun will kill quail at 60 yards and duck at 40. The farther the game is away from us, provided it is within range, the more the shot will spread. I once saw half dozen hunters fire at a covey of quail that rose in an open field before they had gone 30 yards and every hunter scored a clean miss. Any one of these men could bring down his bird under the same conditions nine times out of ten if he had taken his time. On this occasion when their guns were empty another hunter who had withheld his fire said, Are you all done, boys? And shot a bird with each barrel at a measured 58 yards. To kill a bird that another man has shot at is called wiping his eyes. And it is the chief joy of an old hunter to do this with a beginner. If you do not want to let the old hunter wipe your eye, take your time. Learn to shoot with your head while open with both eyes open. When the game rises, keep your eye on it and at the instant that you see it on the end of your gun barrel, fire. The greatest joy of hunting is to see the game appear to tumble off the end of your gun barrel when it is hit. If there is a doubt as to whose bird it island and this happens constantly as two people often shoot at the same time at the same bird, do not rush in and claim it. Remember you are a gentleman, but if you are sure that you hit it, at least stand for your rights. So much of the pleasure of hunting depends on our companions that we must be considerate of the feelings of others as well as our own. Always hunt if possible with experienced hunters. You will not only have more fun, but you will run much less risk. In rabbit hunting, one is especially at the mercy of the beginner who fires wildly without any thought as to whose life he may be endangering. So long as he gets the rabbit, if you hunt with someone who owns the dogs, be very careful not to interfere with them by giving commands. As a rule the owner of a well-trained dog prefers to handle him without any help, and, while he may not tell you, you may be sure that he will resent it if you try to make the dog do your bidding when his master is around. The pattern of a gun, as it is called, is the number of shot it will put within a circle at a given distance. As a rule the factory test pattern will be found on a tag attached to the gun. If not, you can easily get the pattern yourself. The usual distance for targeting a new gun is 30 yards and the standard circle is 30 inches. Make a circle on the barn door with a piece of chalk and string 15 inches long. First drive a nail into the wood and fasten the string to it with the chalk on the loose end. Then describe and measure 90 feet from the target. Fire as nearly as you can at the center of the circle and count the shot that are inside the chalk mark. In order not to count the same shot twice mark them off with a pencil. Perhaps a sure way would be to fire at the door first and in the center of the load of shot drive the nail and describe a circle afterward. The chief advantage of studying the pattern of your gun is to know just how much it scatters and how far it may be dependent upon to shoot and kill. In a chokebore gun, the end of the barrel is drawn in slightly and made smaller to keep the shot together. Guns that are used in duck and goose hunting are usually full choked as most of the shots are long ones. But for ordinary brush and field shooting a gun that has a full cylinder right barrel and a modified choke on the left will be the best for general purposes. The best size is 12 bore or gauge. 10 gauge guns are entirely too heavy for general use and the smaller bores, such as 16 or even 20 gauge, while they are very light and dainty, are not a typical all-around gun for a boy who can only afford to have one size. The smaller bores, however, have become very popular in recent years and much may be said in their favor. The standard length of barrels is either 28 or 30 inches. The shorter length will probably be just as satisfactory and makes a much better proportion between the stock and barrels. You can easily test the amount of choke in a 12-gauge gun. 
a new 10 cent piece will just go inside the end of the barrel of a full cylinder gun and just fail to go into a one that has been slightly choked. While it is impossible to give any written directions for shooting that are as valuable as actual practice, the important thing for a beginner is to get his form right at first, just as in golf or horseback riding, and then to make up his mind that every shot has got to count. Rifle shooting is entirely different from shotgun shooting and skill in one branch of the sport of marksmanship does not mean much in the other. A boy may be an excellent rifle shot at a stationary target and still not be able to hit a flock of barns, as the country boys say, with a shotgun. Skill with a rifle is chiefly of value to those who are interested in military affairs and more rarely to those who are fortunate enough to have an opportunity for hunting big game. In settled communities there is a strong feeling against allowing boys to have rifles. Practically the only game that can be hunted will be our little friends, the songbirds, and no self-respecting boy will shoot them. A small caliber rifle such as a 22 caliber Flobert will afford considerable pastime at target practice and is also excellent to hunt snakes and frogs along some brook or creek. But generally a boy with a rifle is a public nuisance, and as a rule is liable to arrest in possessing it. If we fix up a rifle range where there are no dangers of damage from spent bullets or badly aimed shots it is well enough to practice with a small rifle. A real sporting rifle, such as is used for big game, is a very dangerous firearm and cannot be used with safety anywhere but in an absolute wilderness or on a target range. Such guns will kill at a mile and go through a tree a foot or two in diameter. To use such a weapon in even a sparsely settled section is very dangerous indeed. If a boy has any chance of going hunting for deer or moose, he will surely need practice and for this purpose a range will have to be selected where there is absolutely no danger to anyone within a mile or two. A good practice range is across a lake or river with a bank of earth or clay to stop the bullets. Big game hunting is done so frequently from canoes that it is well to get practice from a boat, both moving and stationary. To shoot successfully from a sitting position in a canoe is a very difficult feat. Just as with a shotgun the universal tendency is to shoot too quickly, with a rifle it is to shoot too high. The reason is that we hold our head so high up in looking at our game that we fail to see the rear sight at all. Be sure your head is low enough to see both sights. Always hold your breath while you are taking aim. Learn to shoot from all sorts of positions, lying, sitting, kneeling, and standing. If the shot is a long one, be sure that your rear sight is properly elevated for the distance. Most of the shots at big game are stationary shots and within a hundred yards, consequently accuracy counts for more than quickness. With a magazine or a repeating rifle be sure that you have emptied your magazine before you leave the gun. With a shotgun there is a possibility that the person who didn't know it was loaded may not kill his victim outright. With a sporting rifle it is practically sure death. The general rules of care apply to both rifles and shotguns. Always clean the gun after you have taken it into the field. This is necessary whether you have fired the gun or not, as a gun barrel will always collect a certain amount of dampness. It is an excellent practice to keep a gun covered with oil or Vaseline except when it is in use. It not only prevents rust, but the grease also discourages visitors and friends from handling the gun, snapping the trigger, or otherwise damaging it. In this chapter, I have not said anything about revolvers or pistols, because I do not believe that any sensible boy will care to own one. A revolver is a constant source of danger owing to its short barrel, and as it has no practical value except as a weapon of defense, and as there is a severe penalty for carrying a concealed weapon, I should not care to recommend any boy to own a revolver. 
The final question whether we may have a gun and what kind it should be, will depend very largely on the place we live. Any kind of a gun is very much out of place in cities or towns. The boy who does not really have an opportunity to use a gun should be too sensible to ask for one. For surely if we own it we shall constantly want to use it even at some risk. It will be far better to ask for something we can use and leave the gun question until the time when we have a real opportunity. Finally we must remember that the one who has the gun in his possession is rarely the one that is accidentally shot. We should therefore avoid companions who do own guns and who are careless with them. No amount of care on our part will prevent some careless boyfriend from risking our lives. The safer way is to stay home. The I.I. Fishing Proper Tackle for all purposes How to Catch Bait The Fly Fisherman General Fishing Rules Fishing is one sport of boyhood that we never outgrow our love for. Some of the most enthusiastic fishermen are gray-haired men. We often hear about the boy with the bent pin and the piece of thread who catches more fish than the expert fisherman with modern, up-to-date tackle. But I doubt if it is so. As a rule the better our tackle the more fish we shall catch. If the country boy catches the most fish, it is simply because he is better acquainted with the places where the fish hide or feed. He knows their habits better and the best kind of bait to use. A lover of fishing should take a personal interest in his equipment and should desire to have the best he can afford. The chief requirement of a successful fisherman is patience. Next to that is a knowledge of the waters fished in and the habits of the fish and how to attract them. A man or a boy who will sit all day in the hot sun waiting for a bite is not always a good fisherman. He must use common sense as well as patience. A game fish may be defined as one that will make a good fight for its life and that is caught by scientific methods of angling. Almost any fish will struggle to escape the hook. But generally by game fish we understand that in fresh water the salmon, bass, or trout family is referred to. Pickerel and pike are also game fish. But in some sections they are considered indesirable because they rarely rise to the fly. Which is the most scientific method of fishing. A fisherman who is a real sportsman always uses tackle as light as he can with safety and still have a chance of landing the fish. If the angler will take his time he can, with skill, tire out and land fish of almost any size. Tunas and tarpon weighing over a hundred pounds are caught with a line that is but little thicker than a grocer's twine. And even sharks and jewfish weighing over five hundred pounds have been caught in the same way. Sometimes the fight will last all day. And then it is a question whether the fisherman or the fish will be exhausted first. In selecting our tackle, we must always keep in mind the kind of fish we expect to catch. For general, freshwater use, except fly casting, an 8-foot rod weighing 7 or 8 ounces will fill most purposes. A fly rod should be a foot longer and at least 2 ounces lighter. The best rods are made of split bamboo, but cheap rods of this material are not worth having. The best cheap rods i.e. costing $5 or less are either lancewood or steel. See that your rod has standing guides and not movable rings. Most of the wire comes on the tip. Therefore it should if possible be agate lined. A soft metal tip will have a groove worn in it in a very short time which will cut the line. The poorest ferrules are nickel plated. The best ones are either German silver or brass. To care for a rod properly, we must keep the windings varnished to prevent them from becoming unwound. Spar varnish is the best for this purpose but shellac will answer. In taking a rod apart, never twist it. Give a sharp pull, and if it refuses to budge, it can sometimes be loosened by slightly heating the ferrule with a candle. If the ferrule is kept clean inside, and if the rod is taken apart frequently, there is no reason why it should stick. A multiplying reel holding 60 yards is large enough for most fishing. 
the raised filler reels are the best, one of good quality costing about $4, a cheap reel soon goes to pieces, silk lines are better than linen because greater strength is obtained with the same thickness, always dry a line every time it is used, or it will soon rot and be worthless, the back of a chair is excellent for this purpose, never tie a knot in a line that you expect to use with rod and reel, the knot will always catch in one of the guides just at the time when you are landing your biggest fish. Hooks come in a great variety of shapes and models but there are none better than the standard Sproat. It is the general favorite of fishermen everywhere. Although of course the other leading models, Carlisle, Limerick, Pennell, Aberdeen, Snick and a number of others all have their friends. A great many fishermen make the mistake of using hooks that are too large. The hook sizes that are commonly used are numbered from 6-0 which is the largest, to number 12, which is a tiny thing about right to catch minnows, where we expect to catch fish a pound or two in weight, the number one size is about right, such a hook will catch much larger fish if they happen to come along, I have caught a 12 pound lake trout on a number 4 pro at hook and the hook did not show that it had bent in the least, our tackle box should contain an assortment of sizes however, snelled hooks are better than ringed hooks and those of blued steel better than black enamel, no matter how inexpensive the rest of the equipment island be sure that your hooks are of good quality. Keep the points sharp. A tiny bit of oil stone, a file, or a piece of emery cloth are all good for this purpose. It takes a sharp point to penetrate the bony jaw of a fish. Always inspect your hook after you have caught it on a rock or snag. Fishing is generally divided into four classes, fly casting, bait casting, trolling, and still fishing. The average boy is a still fisherman which means not only that he must keep still, but that his bait remains in one place instead of being trolled or cast about. The usual strings of fish that boys catch, such as perch, sunfish, bullheads, catfish, and whitefish, are called panfish. This is not entirely a correct name as I have seen some catfish that it would take a pretty big pan to hold. One caught in the Mississippi River weighed over a hundred pounds. Fly casting is the most scientific method of fishing and gives the greatest pleasure to the fisherman after he has once become an expert. No matter what method we follow in fishing, we must never try to catch fish by any method which the laws may prohibit, such as spearing, set lines, or nets. Each state has its own laws which the fisherman must learn and obey. Worms are the best all-around bait for fishing. They are as a rule easily obtained and may be kept for a long time. The boy's method of placing them in a tin can with a mixture of mud will soon kill them. However, especially if the worms are exposed to the sun for a time, a half-buried soap box makes a very good place to keep a supply of worms which will be ready for use at any time without the necessity of digging them. Worms may be fed on the white of a hard-boiled egg, but if given plenty of room they will usually find enough food in the soil. By placing worms in sand they will soon scour and turn pink when they are far more attractive as bait. The large worms, or night walkers, can be caught at night with a lantern. These large worms are best obtained after a rain or on lawns that are sprinkled frequently, when they will be found moving about on top of the ground but always with one end in the hole from which they have emerged and into which they can dart if they are disturbed. For big fish, the best bait is minnows. In trolling with them it will make but little difference whether dead or alive, but for still fishing the minnows must not only be alive, to attract the fish, lively as well, the regulation minnow bucket consists of one pail fitted inside of another, the inner one being made of wire mesh to permit the free circulation of the water, this enables us to change the water frequently without handling the fish, 
when we reach a place where fresh water is obtainable, we simply remove the inner pail, pour out the stale water from the other pail, and fill it as quickly as possible. To keep bait alive in warm weather we must change the water frequently. Another method where fresh water is not available, as on a long drive, is to aerate it by pouring from one pail to another. It is an excellent plan to place a piece of ice on top of the minnow pail. With this arrangement, it will not be necessary to give them fresh water for a long time. The simplest way to catch minnows is with a drop net. Take an iron ring or hoop such as children use and sew to it a bag of cotton mosquito netting, half as deep as the diameter of the ring. Sew a weight in the bottom of the net to make it sink readily and fasten it to a pole. When we reach the place which the minnows frequent, such as the cove of the lake, we must proceed very cautiously, lowering the net into the water and then baiting it with bits of bread or meat, a very little at a time, until we see a school of bait darting here and there over the net. We must then give a quick lift without any hesitation and try to catch as many as possible from escaping over the sides. The minnow bucket should be close at hand to transfer them to and care must be used not to injure them or allow them to scale themselves in their efforts to escape. The common method of capturing minnows is to use a sweet net, but it takes several people to handle one properly and for our own use the drop net method will probably supply us with all the bait that we need. Fish are very fickle in their tastes. What will be good bait one day will absolutely fail the next and sometimes even in an hour the same thing will take place. Why this is so no one has been able to explain satisfactorily, but that it is a fact no fisherman will deny. We should therefore have as great a variety of bait in our equipment as possible. Worms, crawfish, minnows, frogs, grasshoppers, grubs and hellgramites are all good at times in fresh water, as well as various kinds of artificial baits, spoons, spinners, and rubber lures. Sometimes fish will take very unusual baits. Black bass have been caught on young bats. The famous old trout in the Beaverkill River in New York State, which had refused all the ordinary baits and flies that were offered him for years and that on bright days could be seen in a pool lying deep down in the water, finally fell a victim to a young mouse that was tied to the hook with pink silk. Fly fishing is the most expert and scientific method of angling. It is the poetry of fishing. The fly fisherman usually wades in the brook or stream where he is fishing. Although it is sometimes possible to cast a fly from the bank or a boat, it is useless to go fly fishing while there is no water in the brooks but just as soon as the first warm days of spring come, then fishing is at its best. The whole idea of casting a fly is to drop it in the most likely looking places and to strike the fish just as soon as he seizes the hook. To do this we must always have the line under perfect control, therefore do not attempt to cast a line to great a distance. If we do not fix the hook into the fish's mouth at the instant that he seizes the fly, he will very soon find that what he thought was a nice fat bug or juicy caterpillar is nothing but a bit of wool and some feathers with a sting in its tail, and he will spin it out before we can recover our slack line. It is a common mistake to use flies that are too large. Ordinary trout flies are the proper size for base and the smallest size trout flies are plenty large enough for trout. There are hundreds of kinds of flies of various combinations of colors and no one can say which is the best. This question has been argued by fishermen ever since the days of Isaac Walton. The universal rule of trout and bass fishermen who use a fly is to select small dark flies for bright days or when the water is very clear or low and the more brightly colored ones when the day is dark or the water dark or turbid. The fly book should contain a varied assortment to meet these conditions. The best lines for fly fishing are made of braided enameled silk. 
Some fly lines are tapered but this is not necessary and is a needless expense. Twisted lines are much cheaper but very unsatisfactory. Fly fishing is not only the most scientific and sportsmanlike method of fishing but it is also the most difficult to acquire skill in. It is of course possible to catch trout and salmon on other bait than flies. In fact, there is really no better bait for brook trout than common fish worms that have been scoured in sand. The use of a fly, however, is more satisfactory where the pleasure derived in fishing is more important than the size of the string. In learning to cast a fly, you can practice at home, either in an open space or wherever there is room to work the line. It is not necessary to practice with the actual hooks or flies on the line. Simply tie a knot in it. Hold the rod lightly but firmly in the right hand. Point your thumb along the line of the rod and start by pulling out a little line from the reel with the left hand. With a steady sweep, cast the end of the line toward some nearby object and with each cast pull out a little more line until you reach a point when you are handling all the line you can take care of without effort or without too much of a sweep on the back. Cast. You must not allow the line to become entangled in trees or other obstacles. The wrist does most of the work in casting. The elbow should be closed to the side. If you find that the line snaps like a whip on the back cast, it is because you start the forward cast before the line straightens out behind. When you can handle 25 or 30 feet accurately, you can safely get ready to go fishing. The most successful fly fishermen use a short line but they use it with the utmost accuracy and can make the flies land within a foot of the place they are aiming at almost every time. When a trout strikes your fly, you must snub him quickly or he will surely get away. If the flies you are using do not cause the fish to arise, and if you are certain that it is not due to your lack of skill, it will be well to change to some other combination of colors, but give your first selection a fair trial. Bait casting is much easier than fly casting as the weight of the bait will help to carry out the line. It is the common method of fishing with minnows, frogs, small spoons and spinners, and other artificial lures. Some fishermen practice the method of allowing the line to run from the reel. The principal point in this way of fishing is to stop the reel by using the thumb as a brake at the instant that the bait strikes the water. This prevents the reel from spinning and causing the line to overrun. Neglect of this precaution will cause a very annoying tangle that is sometimes called a backlash, but more often characterized by much harsher names by the impatient fisherman who has the misfortune to experience it. In live bait casting, start with the line reel to within 15 inches of the end of the rod, holding the thumb on the reel spool, with a rather strong overhead sweep. Bring the rod forward, at the proper instant, which is just as the point of the rod goes over your head. Release the pressure of your thumb and the bait will go forward as the line runs out rapidly. When the bait lands, reel in slowly and with various motions try to give to the bait as lifelike an appearance as possible. If you had a strike, allow the fish sufficient time to obtain a secure hold of the bait and by a sudden jerk fix the hook in his mouth. Bait casting is as a rule a very effective method of catching fish, especially in shallow lakes and where fly fishing is not practiced. In deep water, Trolling or still fishing are usually the best methods of catching fish and often the only methods that will be successful. Trolling consists simply in rowing or paddling slowly with the bait or spoon trailing behind. It is not a scientific way of fishing and requires but little skill. When the fish strikes, it usually hooks itself and all that remains is to reel it into the boat and land it. The conditions on large lakes often make it necessary to follow one of these methods of trolling or still fishing especially during the warm weather when the big fish have left the spawning grounds and are in deep water. 
There are trolling devices called spinners that have several gangs of hooks, sometimes as many as 15. No real fisherman would use such a murderous arrangement which gives the fish practically no chance at all and in many states their use is properly prohibited by law. A single hook, or at most a single gang of three hooks, is all that anyone should ever use. Every boy knows what still fishing is, it is the common method of baiting our hook, casting it from the shore or from a boat and waiting for a bite. In still fishing it is customary to use a light sinker to keep the bait near the bottom and a float or cork, which serves the double purpose of keeping the bait away from snags, stones, or weeds on the bottom and also of showing us when we have a bite. The more expert still fishermen never use a float, as they prefer to tell by the pull on the line when a fish has taken the bait. A fishing boat should be thoroughly seaworthy and also have plenty of room. Flat bottom boats make the best type for fishing. Provided that we do not have to row them far or if the place where we use them is not subject to sudden squalls or rough water, the middle seat should contain both a fish well and a minnow box with a dividing partition and with two hinged lids fitted into the seat. Such a boat can be built by an ordinary carpenter and should not cost over 10 or 12 dollars. It should be painted every year to keep it in good condition. Use clear white pine or cedar for the sides. The bottom boards should not be fitted tightly together but left with crust.